Welcome to the Digital Edge with Sharon Nelson and Jim Calloway. Your hosts, both legal technologists, authors, and lecturers, invite industry professionals to discuss a new topic related to lawyers and technology. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 97th edition of the Digital Edge Lawyers and Technology. I'm Jim Calloway, director of the Oklahoma Bar Association's Management Assistance Program. My co-host, Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises, is unable to be with us today. Our topic today is going to be the emerging duty of technology competence for lawyers. But before we get started, we'd like to thank our sponsors. CloudMast offers cost-effective and efficient data management for law firms, whether large or small, in Google Apps, Office 365, and other cloud solutions. Sign up now for your 60 days free account at cloudmask.com. We also think ServeNow, a nationwide network of trusted process servers who have experience with high volume serves, embrace technology, and understand the litigation process. Visit servenow.com to learn more. We also want to thank our sponsor, Scorpion, who delivers award-winning law firm web design and online marketing programs to get you more cases. Scorpion helps thousands of law firms just like yours attract new cases and grow their practice. I am very happy to welcome as our guest today, Bob Ambrosi. Bob is a well-known legal technology writer, blogger, podcaster. In fact, he has several podcasts with the Legal Talk Network, which we'll talk about in a minute. But Bob, why don't you finish introducing yourself before I fall apart, uh, giving you all the accolades that I know you deserve. <laughs> Jim, thanks for having me on the show. And I think you about covered it. Uh, yeah, I write a blog called Law Sites, where I cover uh, technology and uh, the web and uh, do the Lawyer to Lawyer podcast on the Legal Talk Network. And we've just launched a new uh, podcast with Monica Bay. Well, it's sort of a revival of an old podcast that was uh, sitting dormant for a couple of years, but uh, called Law Technology Now, uh, in which Monica and I are going to be interviewing some of the interesting people in the legal technology field. And uh, that just launched on the Legal Talk Network. So look for us there. Well, great. That's good news. And in case you hear any ambient noise in the background, we're broadcasting live from the ABA Mid-Year meeting in sunny San Diego, California. Uh, We're having attendees walk by us as we do our podcast, and it's a great venue. So let's get started in talking about this so-called duty of technology competence. Bob, why don't you start off by explaining to our listeners, uh, what is this duty of technology competence? Well, what what we're talking about got its start, uh, traces it back to probably 2009 when the uh, American Bar Association convened something called the Commission on Ethics 2020, which was appointed to really kind of take a in-depth look at how advances in technology um, affected uh, the ABA model rules of professional conduct, whether the way changes in the, in the way lawyers practice and how technology affected practice uh, mandated uh, any need for changes. And uh, as I'm sure listeners know, the 2020 Commission made any number of recommendations uh, but uh, one, the one we're most talking about here uh, really was a, a recommendation to modify Rule 1.1, the model rule on competence. And the uh, ABA House of Delegates adopted that in August 2012 now. It seems, seems like just yesterday to me. The competence rule itself basically just says that a lawyer has a duty to provide competent representation to a client. 
uh, and that competent representation requires the legal knowledge, skill, thoroughness, and preparation reasonably necessary for the representation. The, the change amended comment eight to the model rule, and it basically just stuck in one phrase. So it's now that the comment based on this change says that uh, to maintain the requisite knowledge and skill, a lawyer should keep abreast of changes in the law and its practice, including the benefits and risks associated with relevant technology. So that last little phrase, including the benefits and risks associated with relevant technology, was what was new out of that report. You know, there's two ways to look at this. You can say that the states that adopt this new uh, change are uh, implementing some new regulatory burden on lawyers, or you can just say that we're recognizing the realities of what it's like to practice law in today's environment. Do you have any comment or reaction about that? Well, you know, it's funny because the, the 2020 commission itself said this is not a new duty, that lawyers have always had a duty to be to be competent in the tools and, and, and the technologies they use, uh, as both as they relate to their own law practices and as they affect their clients. Uh, and so, you know, you, you can make the argument there's sort of nothing, nothing new here. Uh, I, I don't see it that way. I, to me, I, I've said before, I, I really see this, I saw it at the time in 2012 as a real sea change, only because for the first time we now have it in writing. We have it you know, sort of official. It's, it's it, you know, it, that lawyers have to do it. And, and Jim, as you and I well know, and, and Sharon would agree if she were here, that uh, lawyers are a long way, for, a lot of lawyers, not all, but there are a lot of lawyers who are a long way from having that competence. Uh, I would agree with that. I just left the uh, law practice division meeting where some of our most technological competent lawyers uh, were in attendance. But uh, And where carbon paper came up. <laughs> that's where carbon paper came up during the meeting, actually. That's correct. But uh, I do think that uh, a lot of lawyers have lagged behind on technology, and partly it's because they are uh, often so busy. Uh, but I don't think, I think there's something about the people that became lawyers. They didn't become engineers perhaps for a reason. But uh, certainly technology is changing. And, and the, uh, as you know, this is a model rule that only goes into effect when the states actually adopt their binding version of the rules. So uh, do you know how many states have adopted this uh, new change at this point? Funny you should ask. Uh, I, you know, I've been, I have been trying to track it. Uh, I, I, I uh, on my blog, I've had a post I've been updating on a regular basis. I'm, I'm up to 20 uh, right now. I've, according to my count, there have been 20 states that have uh, officially adopted it. Uh, and that, the number's a little loose only because I, for example, I include uh, the state of New York, uh, which where the, where the model rule is kind of an advisory uh, uh, thing there. But for the, basically we're saying 20. You know, I I know there are other states considering it uh, where uh, it's been uh, discussed and, and uh, recommendations have been made. So I, I, I suspect that pretty soon we're going to see a number of other states, uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if eventually they all do. And I should and I should actually add to that that some of the states that haven't adopted this change of the model rule have, in ethics opinions, talked uh, uh, about the recognize the fact that dude, lawyers have a duty to be competent in technology. Well. If you want to keep track of the states as they continue to adopt this rule or consider this rule, I would recommend Bob's blog, lawsites.com. And every time there's a new state that adopts it, I see Bob increase the total there. Now let's pause for a commercial break and then we'll be right back. Not getting enough cases from the internet or the kinds of cases you want? Scorpion can help. 
Over the last 15 years, Scorpion has helped thousands of law firms, just like yours, attract new cases and grow their practices. During this time, Scorpion has won over 100 awards for its law firm website design and online marketing success. Join the thousands of law firms which partner with Scorpion and start getting more cases today. For more information, visit scorpionlegal.co forward slash podcast. In recent years, the legal sector has come under increasing pressure to improve efficiency and client services. CloudMask enables law firms and solo attorneys to leverage free and low-cost software as a service, such as Google Apps and Office 365, to improve efficiency and client service while reducing costs, strengthening compliance with data privacy laws, and ensuring that legal ethical duties are met. CloudMask encryption is even certified by 26 governments around the world. Sign up now for your 60-day free account at cloudmask.com. Looking for a process server you can trust? ServeNow.com is a nationwide network of local pre-screened process servers. ServeNow works with the most professional process servers in the country. Connect your firm with process servers who embrace technology, have experience with high-volume serves, and understand the litigation process and rules of properly effectuating service. Find a pre-screened process server today. Visit servenow.com. Welcome back to the Digital Edge on the Legal Talk Network. Today, our subject is the emerging duty of technology competence. And our guest is Bob Ambrosi, who is a uh, longtime blogger and legal technologist, journalist, I would say, uh, on all of these topics. You said you didn't think we were really giving something new to lawyers. Could you expand on that a little bit? Did law- you said lawyers always had this duty. I'm not sure the legal profession would agree with you about that. Well, no, and, and I think what I said is I'm not sure I agree with it. I mean, I think I, I understand why the 2020 Commission said that, but I, I think lawyers certainly themselves did not understand that. And, and uh, it, to me, one of the most uh, telling um, signs of what this might mean, uh, it was a, a California ethics opinion that came down this year dealing particularly with e-discovery, but it was probably the most explicit opinion that I've seen so far that specifically talked about the implications of this duty of technology competence for a particular area of law. And basically what the California opinion said is that if you are a lawyer who does litigation of any kind, whether it's the small, a tiny family case or whatever, if you're going into court representing clients in court, that you need to be competent in e-discovery technology. Now, I, that to me, that's surprising to me because I think a lot of lawyers think of e-discovery as a, a sort of esoteric uh, field for specialists. Uh, but this opinion is saying, you know, as one example of this application of the duty of technology competence, you need to be able to do that yourself. Uh, to me, that's a, a pretty far-reaching uh, example of, of just what this decision, what this uh, uh, duty can come to mean. Well, and I think that's one reason that the rule talks about relevant technology. If you're doing a case in litigation where it's a DUI defense, there may be no electronic discovery associated with it. Uh, And I had a lawyer who was arguing against this rule who said, so you're telling me I have to learn about Twitter and I don't ever want to learn about Twitter. Um, my response to him was, unless you have a client who has a Twitter problem, uh, you probably don't have to learn about Twitter. Wouldn't you agree with that? 
Yeah, right, and right. It's relevant technology. You, you need to know what you don't know. And so not only is it within context, but you, you don't have to have the knowledge yourself. It's not that every lawyer suddenly has to come out and be, go out and become a computer programmer uh, or an expert in, in social media or anything else. It's that you need to have enough awareness about what the issues are that you know when you're in over your head and when you need to get help. And you know, several of the ethics opinions have talked about the idea that it's okay to go out and get outside help when you don't have the confidence yourself. So that's another aspect of it. One thing I liked about the California ethics opinion is they actually had a little scenario that explained how a lawyer could get into trouble uh, really in kind of an innocent, if you will, way. Uh, I also, are you familiar with, there was a Texas opinion about encryption that gave some examples about when a lawyer should consider encrypting uh, communications. Are you familiar with that opinion? I had heard of it. I'm not, you're going to have to refresh my recollection on that one. Well, they, they just talked about it, that the duty to encrypt would be more evident when, for example, the client shared an email address with somebody else or when the uh, you had some belief that they were opening, opening it up in an insecure environment. And so... Uh, I, I think encryption is another one of those uh, relevant technologies that we're going to have to take a look at as we see more and more identity theft. And, and for example, uh, I, I just had a bar association that will go nameless uh, send me a uh, W-9 and said, please uh, uh, fill this out with your Social Security number and electronically sign it and email it back to us. And, and I had to tell them that you know my duty of competence to myself involves that I'm not going to uh, send my Social Security number and my address and my full name and by an unencrypted email. Right. You know, as you well know, I write endlessly. Any number of times I've been saying that lawyers just need to get up to speed on encryption and be using encryption more uh, and be thinking about it. And it's easy to use these days, so there's really no excuse not to be doing it. Well, lawyers, of course, uh, appreciate the ethics opinions, but most of those are non-binding and advisory in nature. Uh, are there any cases that have offered guidance on this particular duty that you're aware of? I have not seen any cases, and you, you may correct me if I'm wrong, that explicitly talk about this Rule of 1.1 1 .1, uh, comment. However, again, there are any number of court cases that do talk uh, that do recognize uh, that lawyers have a duty to be competent in the technologies that they're using. And actually, e-discovery, again, is another area where you've seen a couple of cases, a number of, I shouldn't say a couple, there's actually been a, a fair number of cases that have come up where lawyers have gotten in trouble in the e-discovery context for not knowing what they're doing, not knowing how to collect data or not knowing how to preserve data or not knowing how to search data. Uh, and so, again, it's an example of, and, and there have been cases where that gets the client in trouble or that gets the lawyer in trouble with sanctions. Um, and so you, you need to know, again, you need to know what you don't know. I mean, the, one of the interesting things about the, the California ethics opinion, which is very detailed, as you said, a very detailed scenario and a very detailed discussion of the scenario, is that they make very clear that, uh, again, it's okay if you bring in others, and that others can even be an associate in your own firm. If, 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 if there's a brilliant young associate in your firm who's got this stuff, that's fine. Or if you need to associate with another lawyer at an outside firm, maybe you need to do that. Or if it's a paid consultant from outside, that's okay. You can, you can effectively contract out your competence. Uh, <laughs> the building is collapsing around us here. Is this a California earthquake? So you can effectively contract out your competence. But one, one thing you cannot do 
if you do that is contract out your supervision of the case. If you're the lead attorney on a case, your obligation to supervise that case doesn't go away even if you bring in other contractors and all of that. So that's an important point to remember. I really believe that's one of the uh, most important observations on this topic to understand what you don't know and to understand. And, and that's not much different from what lawyers have done in the past, knowing when to spot issues rather than always having the answer to the issue in their pocket. You mentioned about a lawyer contracting out tech competence, and it could be an associate in a firm, it could be an outside contractor. That brings up another one of these ethical duties, of course, that we have to uh, pay attention to who we uh, contract out things with, who we employ and whatever. Any thoughts about how a lawyer who's really not prepared to do that can uh, make a determination on when they need to contract and who? Do they always need to hire an associate? Well, they don't always need to hire an associate. They could associate with a lawyer at another firm. They could bring in an outside vendor or an outside consultant, a tech consultant or an e-discovery consultant or whatever the particular matter is, a social media consultant. You know, I do, though, want to emphasize that the, the ethics opinions say that the lawyer needs to make the assessment up front as to whether he or she has still, even if they don't have the specific technology competence, they have to have the ability to continue to maintain control of the case. And, and if if the case, if they're going to be getting in over their heads, even by bringing in outside vendors or whatever, then they need to turn down that representation or pass it off to somebody else. And that that duty to supervise, again, the California opinion is one of the ones that's the most explicit about this. But. Uh, they, was a, this is a, just to read a quote from that decision, they say that the, the attorney who is the, the principal lawyer on the case uh, must maintain overall, this is a quote, must maintain overall responsibility for the work of the expert he or she chooses, even if that expert is the client or, so, any, or someone employed by the client. Actually, that was an interesting point that opinion made. If your client has the expertise, maybe you're representing a tech company or something. That's okay, uh, as long as it's there somewhere. Uh, but they, they, they go on to say the attorney must remain regularly engaged in the expert's work and educate everyone in the case involved uh, about the legal issues in the case, the factual matters impacting the case, witnesses, evidentiary issues, all of that stuff. The lawyer has to stay on top of that, even if it's, you know, in other words, the lawyer has to do what the lawyer is supposed to do in the case. I read an interesting blog post uh, recently from a lawyer who said that as a young associate, he became the e-discovery expert in the firm after hearing a partner scream that he'd just lost a document and running into there and hitting control Z a couple of times <laughs> to recover from the document. And the, and the partner was so impressed, he put him in charge of e-discovery. <laughs> so that's, that's a scary thought. That is a scary thought. Uh, any more thoughts on the teachings from that California opinion? Because I, like you, thought that was a, a, a an opinion that really had implications beyond the specifics of e-discovery, but more into our general topic today. Well, I guess, again, the, the other point that I took away from that is really critical was the uh, court, the uh, ethics uh, panel's emphasis on the lawyer's duty to maintain confidentiality. So again, this, the, the, the lead attorney in the case, a part of being uh, ethical here means maintaining the, the confidentiality of, of, of the client's uh, confidences. Uh, and so again, even if you are contracting out part of this or turning over some of the responsibility to somebody else, that does not free you of your duty to maintain all of the confidences. Uh, again, just to, just to read a a quote from the opinion, it says, an attorney has a duty to assert the attorney-client privilege to protect confidential communications between the attorney and the client. In civil discovery, the attorney-client privilege will protect 
confidential communications between the attorney and client in cases of inadvertent disclosure only if the attorney and the client act reasonably to protect the privilege. A lack of reasonable care to protect against disclosing privileged and protected information when producing electronically stored information can be deemed a waiver of the attorney-client privilege. So it's a lack of reasonable care in the, in the electronic discovery context is, is the context, is the uh, standard they apply there. Um, so, you know, it's, we're, we're, we're trying to figure out the contours of this. I mean, we, we've got this idea that lawyers have this duty of technology competence, that the, we've got very little guidance yet as to exactly what that means. Um, but I think like a lot of things that you and I have talked about in the past, Jim, it, a lot of it comes down to common sense. And so much of being an ethical lawyer uh, is about having common sense about what you should be doing yourself and, and what you're not able to be doing and, and knowing when to draw that line. Well, I completely agree. And I think sometimes we focus a little bit too much on the, the word risk and forget the word benefits. There are certainly, a, uh, as you and I know, we work in a much different way than we did a couple of years ago or five years ago or 10 years ago as we take advantage of technology advances. And I think some of those can really be a great benefit to your client as well. Uh, right now, I'm talking to the solo and small firm lawyers about the need to uh, automate their document processes and document assembly, because I think that's a big topic. Any other potential things moving away from the duty to your view as a, uh, a commentator on the legal technology scene? Uh, any other uh, big advances you see on the horizon that are going to impact our profession? Uh, oh, I don't know. I, you know, I've been talking a lot about, uh, I, I mean, I'm interested in a lot of things that are going on. I, I think uh, from a technology point of view, uh, the application of uh, advanced analytics uh, uh, to any number of uh, uh, areas of, of, of legal research uh, and legal knowledge development are interesting. The whole uh, Lex Machina acquisition by, by LexisNexis, we've, we've sure uh, a lot of people have heard about that by now, and I think that's a, a, a signal of, of what we're likely to see. Uh, I keep coming back to a lot of the more practical stuff, though. I mean, and I, this is probably something you and I have talked about before. I'm sure we've talked about it before, but I, I think uh, the continuing rise over the last couple of years of, of law practice management technology and the continuing application, uh, continuing recognition by lawyers of the importance of having a law practice management uh, platform of some kind in their practices. That's, you know, like we can't call that cutting edge technology or, or the next new thing. It's here already. But uh, again, it, it goes hand in hand with this duty of technology competence. I think it goes hand in hand with understanding how to make technology, use technology to make you both a better lawyer uh, and, a, and a, a better lawyer for your clients and, and keep you better on top of the cases and the matters and the dates and the calendars and all of that stuff you, you need to be on top of. Um, so, uh, I mean, I've actually written about some of the top trends over the last couple of years and I keep putting, I keep thinking practice management is going to fall off there, but I keep keeping that one on there and maybe it's old school, but... Well, I would completely agree with that. As you know, I work for a state bar association that is a unified bar and also the regulatory and disciplinary authority. And many, and I don't directly do that work, but I sometimes talk to lawyers who are, are concerned about the disciplinary process or sometimes involved in it. Uh, one of the things I see is that many times lawyers had a, 
a, a good explanation as to things, but they didn't document their files well enough. Uh, and so, yes, the client agreed, but they don't really have on the, on the, in the file the moment the client agreed, the conversation that happened, was it email, was it whatever. Maybe if it's an important decision, they need something from the client affirmatively that's in the file. And to me, that's one of the great things practice management software can do is help you quickly document every time you're touching the client. Well, uh, we're getting close to the end of this. I appreciate all of these thoughts. I think a lot of lawyers are overly concerned about this. Uh, but I, I will say that uh, I had a lawyer who said he didn't know how to use technology that came into my office, and uh, he said he just couldn't get it, and I called him on it. I said, I know what you do. You're a medical malpractice lawyer. You learn surgical procedures and drug interactions and all of these complicated things, and you're saying you can't learn the technology uh, that uh, many uh, people with high school educations now use in offices today. His response was, well, I guess you're right. It's probably that I really don't want to, and so hopefully this will direct lawyers to want to. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the I think that's the real key here. Is this is going to get lawyers off their butts a little bit? To, you know, they all have the capability to do it if they want to do it. It just takes some work and some uh, and some effort. Well, Bob Ambrosi, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you very much, Jim, for having me and Sharon. Uh, wish you were here also. That does it for this edition of the Digital Edge Lawyers and Technology. And remember, you can subscribe to all editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or on iTunes. And if you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on iTunes. Thanks for joining us today. You're going to have to wait till next month to hear Sharon say, happy trails, cowboy. Thanks for listening to the Digital Edge, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join Sharon Nelson and Jim Calloway for their next podcast covering the latest topic related to lawyers and technology. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.